0: Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13.
1: Hello and welcome back to First do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. As the Massachusetts legislature resumes its annual push toward the legalization of physician assisted suicide, it is again necessary to push back against this evil. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Patrick Durr, D-E-R-R, who is a professor of philosophy at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, and who has spoken eloquently regarding the historical and cultural roots of doctor-prescribed suicide. Let us first, as always... Begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. O God, we thank you for the gift of Hippocratic medicine, which at its best seeks to heal and to comfort, just as the divine physician did 2,000 years ago when he walked the earth. We ask you, Lord, to protect the profession of medicine from the corrupting temptation to solve society's problems by delivering death, and instead to enlighten the profession of medicine to always be in the service of life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Patrick Durr, not long ago, delivered remarks at an area hospital entitled Professionalism and Virtue in Medicine. He also stated that his talk could be subtitled Hippocrates Was No Fool, and History Proves It. He began his talk by stating, My remarks today will offer you one hypothesis about how ethics, virtue, and professionalism are involved with the meaning of medicine as a human activity. In the course of explaining that hypothesis, my comments will range from social science to law, from Hippocrates to Margaret Mead, from Hadamar and Nuremberg, to humility and fidelity, and throughout, to the meaning of medicine as a moral activity. Dr. Durr continued, with Hippocrates, uniquely, according to the famous anthropologist Margaret Mead, in all the history of magic and medicine... The healers categorically renounced killing. And for the first time, black magic and white magic, the roles of healer and killer, were separated. The disciples of Hippocrates rejected not just some killing, but all killing. No abortion no assisted suicide, no deadly drug, no killing at all. In Meade's view, the Hippocratic Oath permitted the patient to trust the physician without reservation, and permitted the physician to practice his art without yielding to society's incessant efforts to involve him in lethal but socially useful activities. So concluded Dr. Durr in the opening remarks of his talk. Sadly, society often finds it useful to have physicians eliminate those who are not useful. The so-called useless eaters. Or, as coined by 20th century German medicine, Liebens in Wörters Leben, life unworthy of life. The state has often turned to physicians to rid society of those who are deemed problematic. So it is with abortion, And so it is with physician-assisted suicide. And now here is part one of my conversation with Dr. Patrick Durr, which took place this past August. Joining me now is Dr. Patrick Durr. Dr. Durr is a professor of philosophy at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, he received his BA from Seattle University in 1972 and a PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 1976. Dr. Durr did postdoctoral fellowships at UCLA and Johns Hopkins uh, University. His research interests are in the areas of medical ethics, which is why I invited him to be on the show. Uh, medical ethics, and health policy, Uh, also philosophy of science, environmental ethics, and policy. In 2007, Dr. Durr was awarded Clark University's Senior Faculty Fellowship for Excellence in Teaching and Research. He has received research grants from multiple sources, National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and in addition to that, he has authored or co-authored four books and 40 scholarly articles. So welcome, uh, Dr. Durr. I appreciate you um, joining us, especially, I guess, now... With uh, summer winding down, you must be getting ready for another academic year.
2: Yeah, we're already... Uh, Clark starts a little early. We're in the second week of classes. Oh, is that right? Wow. Well, all the more
1: thankful uh, am I that you took the time to do this. And the, the main reason I asked you to join me today was to discuss medical ethics, especially with regard to the Hippocratic Oath, which is increasingly watered down in in, uh, today's uh, culture. Especially, I wanted to talk about the Hippocratic Oath as it relates to physician-assisted suicide, which is once again before the Massachusetts legislature, and there will probably be hearings uh, on this in uh, October. And I believe that assisted suicide is the abandonment of Hippocratic medicine. So when I I was researching this, I I read the text of a talk you gave some years ago at an area hospital, and it was entitled uh, Professionalism and Virtue in Medicine, What Hippocrates Knew. So that certainly caught my attention. And as a subtitle, you added, Hippocrates was no fool and history proves it. I read this, uh, again, due to my uh, ongoing interest in assisted suicide, but I wondered, what prompted you to uh, give this talk?
2: I mean, literally, the honest answer would be that an old friend of mine who is a physician in Wester County asked me to do it. But, you know, I suppose the fuller answer would be that Uh, because of the fields in which I work, I have a lot of sympathy for physicians today. Um, I know that a lot of them are are disturbed at the prospect of, uh, you know, becoming the suicide store. Yeah, right. Um, By virtue of all the demands on their time, uh, they don't have the luxury of sitting and reading uh, medical ethics and medical history all week. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, with all due humility, I thought maybe I could uh, give them some some tools that they could use to advocate for themselves more effectively.
1: Well, as you mentioned, it's, um, it's really difficult for physicians to uh, respond to this. Um, you know, everybody, I'm, I have the luxury of having retired a year ago, but uh, people who are active in the uh, profession are busy, and uh, they have real jobs. And meanwhile, people uh, on the left primarily, their full-time job is to push These uh, cultural uh, changes. So it's really uh, great that you're you're able to uh, give us some uh, ammo. In the talk, you alluded to the fact that it's a difficult time to practice medicine, and you commented that the AMA and the ACP, which is the American Medical Association and the American College of Physicians, are increasingly divided, politicized, and ineffective. Just like a lot of uh, Institutions uh, in our culture today, and I, I would agree with this, but I would also add that at least the AMA and the and the uh, ACP still are uh, very much opposed to um, assisted suicide. But you can see uh, incremental change, and in fact, the Massachusetts Medical Society is even more divided and politicized um, than the AMA and the ACP. They went. Um, neutral on assisted suicide which i think is uh, an abomination so what do you think is behind this uh, increasing division
2: well i don't want to you know i don't want to malign uh, all, all of the good and wonderful physicians out there but talking about the institution I, right. I think there's two things that are in play one of them is pride and the other is ignorance you know we have a cadre of politically active uh, physicians who i guess want to be seen as thought leaders want to be admired by their culture. Who, no offense, think they're smarter than Hippocrates and Walter Reed and Leo Alexander and, yeah. and Mark Siegler? Uh, you know, here in, here in Worcester last year, right? We had a, a letter to the editor defending uh, euthanasia by a 24-year-old uh, medical student. Yeah, that's so, amazing. You know, and that's just—no um, offense, but uh, you're 24 years old and you know more than uh, than Walter Reed and Leo Alexander yeah. and Hippocrates. Yeah, it's It's a preposterous self-assessment. But I think there's ignorance, too, and that's much more understandable uh, because, uh, you know, when I need medical care, I like to get it from people who keep up on the medical literature. It probably means they don't have a lot of time to read history. But certainly some people in the mass medical society do have time to read history. And, you know, in terms of physicians' involvement in, in doing society's Dirty work, this is not a mystery, uh, and it's not the, the dim and deep past, you know. We've mm-hmm. seen what happens when physicians do the dirty work in the Soviet Union or in Nazi Germany mm-hmm. or today in communist China or Iran. We, we know this story. Uh, yep. We know how it ends. Yep. And it doesn't end well for physicians themselves.
1: Yeah, you know? that's true. So there's a, there's a history of government inserting itself and telling physicians what to do. And you mentioned the 24-year-old who wrote a letter to the editor. It made me think of, a, of the Mass Medical Society meeting that I went to, where they went to engaged neutrality, which is a ridiculous term. And when I looked around, there were, there were very few gray heads there, and there were a lot of young bucks, and they were, you know, very woke. And uh, we're really pushing this, um, you know, assisted suicide. Uh, you expressed the uh, concern of many of us about medicine as a uh, profession. And you asked the question, what is a profession? And you cited uh, four definitions that are commonly given. Could you uh, review those for us?
2: Yeah, sure. There are, yeah, there's a grain of truth in each of them, but they're all deeply misleading. There's, uh, let's say, the money model, which works for golf. Yeah. And it says professionals get paid. Uh, mm-hmm. Amateurs work for free. Yes. But, you know, and the physicians have to pay mortgages and feed their families just like everybody else. And uh, it's true that professionals uh, need in some way to get compensated for their work. But uh, William Osler uh, didn't cease to be a professional when he did free clinics, right? It's just, uh, I mean, it, I think it's obvious. What distinguishes a profession as a profession uh, rather than a trade or a hobby or what have you is mm-hmm. not just the fact that professionals have to earn a living. Um, there's some social scientists who call attention to vocabularies, and uh, I guess uh, we could call this the language model. Professions have uh typically uh, esoteric vocabularies, literally technical languages that outsiders don't understand and that are characteristic of the profession. You know, and again, that's true. I mean, physicians and attorneys and and ministers uh, all know a whole lot of words which do not occur in ordinary English. And when they use them, uh, you know, the man on the street probably doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, it's not just language um, makes a profession. Some other social scientists call attention to the fact that Professions have monopolistic control over their own memberships and mm-hmm. successors to medieval guilds in this respect. And that's true. You can't become a physician or an attorney uh, without taking some really difficult exams that are written by and are going to be graded by physicians and attorneys. But private golf courses um, and uh, illicit suburban sex clubs uh, control their membership rather oh, sleep too. So simply controlling membership and making it hard to join isn't isn't uh, that isn't enough to make something a profession. And the last model, which I think shows up um in some legal writing, has to do with self governance, right? There's a grain of truth in this too. The professions to a degree not shared by most other ways of making a living are self regulating. Law, medicine through their organization, set rules of conduct, uh, and more or less effectively, different times and places, police their members' behavior. But again, there's nothing unique there, all right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The Royal St. Andrews Golf Course has, so I'm told, very stringent rules and policies and enforces them ruthlessly. But were I ever, heaven forbid, to try to golf at St. Andrews, it would not turn me into a PGA professional. No, that's true. Self-regulation and uh, charging a fee and having an exotic vocabulary, those are accidentally features of contemporary professions, mm-hmm. but they're not. Seems to me what makes a profession a profession.
1: So you went over the the so-called money model, the language model, the monopoly model, and the self-governing model, and those are interesting ways to to look at um, a profession. But you you gave your own um, definition of a profession. Uh, Why don't you uh, tell us about
2: that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, first, in fairness, I have to say it's certainly not my personal discovered definition. I mm-hmm. think this is the definition of a profession that has been defended by uh you know, physicians like Edmund Pellegrino at mm-hmm. Georgetown or yeah. Mark Siegler at Pripsie School, Chicago, or mm-hmm. there was certainly the definition that, that C. Everett Coop uh deployed when he was surgeon general and, and dealing with issues around the care of patients with with HIV disease. Yes. But, you know, this approach to defining the profession of medicine starts with the most basic facts about human beings and human societies, right? And suppose we ask, what are we? Well, I mean, first of all, we're animals. We have bodies. And uh, second, as Aristotle noted, we're social. Unlike a lot of other animals, humans always live together, live in communities. Mm -hmm. It might be a tribe, might be a clan, might be a nation, but we're social. And third, we're spiritual, right? And then I, you know, and I guess if somebody's allergic to the word spiritual, they could use Maslow's phrase and call this the dimension of ultimate meaning. But humans are all three of those things, and are always all three of those things everywhere in every culture, you know, in in every era. We're biological beings who need health. Mm. We're social beings who need some kind of justice. And we're spiritual beings who need some kind of religion, and it's not an accident that in every human community, in every era of which we have any knowledge, we find people who are dedicated to serving exactly those three basic fundamental needs. say every society has got some kind of healer, it might be a witch doctor, it might be the shaman, it might be a modern physician but Every human needs health, every society values health, and every society has some kind of healer. Same way every society has some kind of justice system, right? Some way of resolving social conflicts. might be a tribal council, you know, I guess a couple centuries ago in England would have been called the Star Chamber. uh, And in the U.S. today, we call it a courtroom. Yeah. But every society needs justice. Every society has some system and some specially trained persons devoted to justice. You know, and last, you know, every society has some kind of spiritual dimension. Right. It might be animism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, but whatever it is, every society has some system of spiritual belief and every society has members who are especially devoted to serving those needs. They might be bhikkhus or gurus or rabbis or druids um, or priests or ministers. But, you know, that's the origin of the professions. The origin of the professions is the nature of the human animal Hmm. itself. Hmm. Humans have basic universal needs, health, justice, spirituality, in every society, in every time, and in every one of those societies, we find some version of those three professions: mm-hmm. medicine, law, and ministry. I'm loath to talk about ministry, you know, so I'm 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 only going to use the examples of medicine mm-hmm. and law. Medicine and law, until fairly recently, were called in English um, the learned and ethical profession, um, and it's sad that that label has disappeared. Because there was a lot of descriptive wisdom in it, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I remember those terms being used, uh, but not lately.
2: Medicine and law are called learned for two good reasons. Physicians and attorneys have to learn a large body of difficult knowledge. Mm -hmm. And this is what distinguishes a physician from a lab scientist or distinguishes an attorney from a legal theorist. And physicians and attorneys have to learn how to apply all of that difficult knowledge to the individual patients and clients that they serve. Part one of this sort of classic approach to defining a profession, professionals have vast knowledge and they know how to apply it to their individual patients. They are learned. But the professions were also called ethical for the straightforward reason that Physicians and attorneys, in fact, professed something. Yes. And what they professed was an ethical commitment about purpose of their profession, or, or, or if you prefer, what I think is actually better, uh, is to say they professed something about the goal for which their knowledge would be used. Right. Which of those fundamental human goods will their knowledge be used to serve? You know, and, and for law, the answer is justice. For physicians, the answer is health, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Physicians have a moral commitment to use their knowledge only and always in the service of a fundamental human good, health. You know, for lawyers, the good would be justice, right? But, you know, if a lawyer becomes indifferent to justice or worse yet, if a lawyer subverts justice, then he simply abandoned law as an ethical professional. The same thing is you know is true of medicine right Medicine as a profession is oriented to the fundamental universal human good of health. You know a medical professional, a physician, accepts an obligation to use her knowledge in the service of health. If that physician is indifferent to her patient's health or life or worse, if that physician actually aims at death or disease or disability, then she's abandoned medicine as an ethical profession.
1: This concludes part one of my conversation with Dr. Patrick Durr. At this time, there can be no greater threat to the ethical nature of medicine than physician-assisted suicide. The abandonment of Hippocratic medicine. The same corruption of medicine which allows the slaughter of innocent life within the sanctuary of the womb has also brought us the notion that physicians can end the suffering of patients by eliminating the lives of suffering patients. There is a reason why, since the time of Hippocrates, both atrocities of abortion and assisted suicide have been specifically forsworn by those who truly try to practice their medical art in purity and in holiness. The twenty. 21 Assisted Suicide Bill is now before the Massachusetts legislature. It is euphemistically called an act relative to end-of-life options. Call your state senator and representative today at 617-722-2000. Tell them we already have ethical end-of-life options They are called hospice and palliative care. They are called walking with your brothers and sisters in compassionate care and welcoming the burden of their suffering and helping to alleviate their pain. Tell your legislators that you want your doctor to continue to be a healer. And a comforter, not a killer. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. First Do No Harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Fitchburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks.
0: Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrolo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O, 978 at gmail.com. Thank you. And until next week, remember first, do no harm.